Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Fatal, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the and science was the province of men of noble birth But I take Mary and over the stuff for sure Hey, this is Stem Patal, your women in science history podcast Is that a seal? It's maybe a siren or someone whoop Whooping. Okay. Like a siren, um, the mermaid-like thing, not the salamander-like thing. Or, like, the ambulance. (laughs) 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 I like the, like, (laughs) mythical creatures and biological. I was like, I thought thought siren lady sounded a lot sexier than that. (laughs) Whoop, whoop. Aeneas, whoop, whoop. Um, oh wow! Okay, welcome to back. <laughs> welcome back to Stem Fatal. I am Emlyn, like Gremlin, and I'm your other Steminist, <laughs> Emma Dilemma. Where uh, I might be trying to make Steminist a thing. Yeah, we'll see if it happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, are you um, ready? Do you have it? Do we have any intro worries, concerns? Not usually. Okay, no. Not not yet. yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I guess we'll just get started. Yeah. I have some lead-in questions to see if you know the women scientists I'm going to be talking about today. Cool. So the first question is, have you heard of the movie Cheaper by the Dozen? With Hilary Duff? No. Wait, was there a movie with Hilary Duff? I mean, there have been movies with Hilary Duff. Well, yeah. Okay. It's with Steve Martin? Oh, and and not Hilary Duff? Not That's Hillary the movie Duff. I was thinking of, but I thought <laughs> no, it's with a, it's a blue with a blonde woman, but she's like forty five, so I'm oh. pretty sure it's not unless she aged rapidly. Oh, yes, she is in yeah, this movie. I knew it. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> what do you know about Cheaper by the Dozen? I know that Hillary Duff. Is <laughs> by the Dozen. Okay. Anything else? Um, I know Steve Martin's in Cheaper by the Dozen. I know that. He's her dad in Cheaper by the Dozen, and that's it. Okay. Eggs are Cheaper by the Dozen. I know that. Also true. Yeah. So the person that, the woman that we're going to talk about today is the mother in Cheaper by the Dozen. I don't even remember the story at all, but I'm certain I've seen this movie. I think the story, at least for the 2003 movie, is just... We have way too many kids, and then the mom goes away. Right. And then Steve Martin has a bunch of hilarious yeah. situations okay, yes. with a bunch of gross yeah, children. Yeah, and Hilary Duff is the older child that helps to take care of all the younger kids. Have you seen this movie? Yes, I've seen the movie. There's also a, a 1950s movie oh, that is closer to what it's actually based on. Oh. Which we'll get to. Wow. So it's based on a female scientist abandoning her family. <laughs> <laughs> 
they'll accept <laughs> she doesn't abandon them at all I think something. in Cheaper by the Dozen they just wanted it to just be Steve Martin okay. being funny yeah and so they pretty much just ignore how hilarious a man taking care of children <laughs> <laughs> woo wow what a premise <laughs> okay alright so okay, yeah. now my curiosity is peaked peaked you're interested okay this woman was known as a genius in the art of living which I would like some suggestions on and one of the first women Martha to Stewart have it all Not this woman's dead and she, Martha Stewart only has one daughter I just remember yes <laughs> Not 12. Not at all. Okay. Which means that she had a career and 12 children. That's not my definition uh, of having no. it all. <laughs> but maybe at the time. Was she an astronaut? No. Oh. Why do you say that? Oh, I'm just asking more questions. <laughs> <laughs> just just guessing? Yeah. Oh, no. wait. But you said she was a living... No, she's dead. No, but she was... She was living. living. Oh, she's good. Yes. <laughs> she's a genius in the art of living. In the art of living. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Wow. Okay. Are you ready to hear more? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to be talking about Lillianne Moeller. Uh, that's her maiden name. And her full name is Lillianne Moeller Gilbreth. Oh, that sounds familiar, but I don't know about her. Okay. So I want to ask you if you know about her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered yeah. that. All right. So Lillian Moeller was born in Oakland, California in hey, 1878. Nice. We're up in the Bay. Oh, I'm from the Bay Area. I'm not, so I'm okay. just going to stare yeah. at you. Cool, thanks. Um, she was the second oldest of Wait, 11... Sorry. 1878. Oh, wow. Okay. Way, way back. Long time ago. Yeah. She was the second oldest of 11 siblings. Oh. And she was homeschooled until the age of nine, and then... Am I recording? Yes. <laughs> uh, and then began, so she was homeschooled until age nine, and then began formal schooling at a public elementary where she quickly excelled and skipped a bunch of grades. Wow. Um, she convinced her father that she could go to school at UC Berkeley while also taking care of her home responsibilities, and so he begrudgingly let her go to college. Um <laughs> And nice. these responsibilities that she were in charge, which she was in charge of, were often great as her mother was ill frequently, and so she, leaving Lillian to look after her younger siblings, which were uh, nine, nine siblings. Oh my god! So she was <laughs> Hillary Duff, and she, she was Hillary Duff. Dozen. Yes. Okay. Well, not for, really for but, her family. Yeah, for her own family. But then she provided the dozen is about her as the mom. Uh, yeah, right. Enough it's a about cycle. Hillary yeah. Duff. Yeah. It's not all about Hillary Duff. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So her early career at college, she majored in English and took philosophy and psychology classes. And she then was the first woman to give a commencement speech at Berkeley. Wow. Amazing. So she was doing really well. At Berkeley. And then she wished to pursue uh, her education further and wanted to go into grad school. Bad idea. No, I'm just kidding. Great <laughs> idea. And Lillian planned to study at Columbia University in New York. <gasps> wow. Another with Columbia. Another Columbia. With famed critic uh, Brander Matthews. So I think he was like an English critic. So he 
talked about Shakespeare and blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, Shakespeare and blah, blah, so blah. So she wanted, she wanted to work with him, but then she discovered that he would not allow women to attend his lectures, so I'm guessing it was probably out of the question to have her as yeah, a student of his. So, yeah, so he kind of sucked, and she didn't go to Columbia. But then in 1904, at age 26, so we're pretty, we're skipping a lot of her, like, early years, because we don't have time. But, um, That's, yeah. at age 26, she married Frank Gilbreth, who was 10 years her senior, so he was, like, 36. Ooh, an older, man. an older gentleman, who was the owner of a large construction company. Oh. And although, Fra- so Frank hadn't gone to university but he followed the work of this guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was a leader in the field of scientific management. Whoa. Do you know anything about scientific management? No. Yeah, no, me either. And then between, so they got married in 1904, and between 1905 and 1922, she had 12 children. Wait, what was that time span? 1905 to 1922. Oh my god. So I guess so that's basically 17... I think that's 17 years she was, like, pretty much pregnant. Wow. But during this time... Her body! (laughs) During this time, she did a lot of things. I guess it gets easier. I guess. I don't know. But, so, Frank encouraged Lillian to pursue a PhD in psychology, and he wanted her to then apply this knowledge to the field of industrial management. So that, um, which would help him operate his firm more uh, efficiently. And she had already taken a bunch of classes in psychology in college and really liked it. So it was kind of a natural progression for her to potentially go into, especially after the Columbia fiasco. Yeah. Um, So Frank and Lillian started their family and then moved to Rhode Island in 1910 with four children. They got busy quickly, and they had four children. And then Lillian managed to get her doctorate from Brown University in 1915. Wow. So Wait. I don't know how many kids she had by 1915, but I but she had probably a couple more and had four and little kids. And got her PhD. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, she probably has, like, seven or eight kids. At this point, and she managed to get her PhD. Oh my gosh. So, her dissertation was called Psychology of Management, the Function of the Mind in Determining, Teaching, and Installing Methods of Least Waste. It's a long long title. Yeah. Um, And she published it in 1914, the year before she got her PhD, and this work stressed the psychological aspects of industrial management, so pretty much just how people are working and the psychological stress that work can cause to people. Gotcha. And uh, it also stressed the importance of human relations in the workplace and the importance of understanding individual differences among workers. That's like a huge thing right now, business psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so this is the original yeah. pretty much business psychology Yeah. of everybody's not the same. You also, people are more efficient if they're happier, if they are... Uh-huh. Here's how to manage people to make them happier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And she was, in fact, the pioneer of what is known as organizational psychology, which is... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So she applied the field of social science to industrial operations, which hadn't been done yet. And so Lillian and Frank Gilbreth emphasized the importance of the worker rather than just, like, the machinery or the building or anything like that um, to shape the workplace. So Mm. they really looked at, like, how workers were important for... 
you know, the functioning of an organization, which I guess had just everybody assumed they were like automatons and cells and like didn't really think about. Yeah, like they weren't humans with their own feelings and thoughts and personalities. Exactly. So together, Lillian and Frank worked in time and motion studies, which I had never heard of. And their work is the basis for many systems, both in industry and in the home. And so their work was based on three fundamental principles. So this is what kind of time and motion studies were, which is one, you reduce the number of motions in a task to increase efficiency. So they looked at how many motions you actually took to do any one task and then tried to figure out how can they cut out motion so it's more streamlined and more efficient. Hmm. And similarly, they used an incremental study of these... Oh, what's... Okay. So (laughs) these motions, they called each motion a thurblig. What? Like they made up a unit, Mm -hmm. basically? Okay. Do you guess what that comes from? Thurblig. Thurblig. T-H-E-R-B-L-I-G. Lord of the Rings? It's their last name spelled backwards. Kind of. Because the T-H is still forward. Weird. (laughs) That's like my brother had a band in high school called Ledgero. Do you know what that is backwards? It's Origel. (laughs) Why? (laughs) The like canker sword. Was that something that really plagued him? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I think they thought it was funny. They were like 15-year-old boys. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> mine. I I used to go by the the name Nilmi Steradiser because that's my oh la- my, my first and last name backwards. I've never thought of my last name backwards, but it's a bit much. Yeah, I would say. I, let's not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So first is to use is to reduce the thurbligs. Oh my gosh. Second is they used an incremental study of motions and time to understand an entire task and the time it takes to complete each motion. So they would, ta- I think they would, would like take videos and, and record how long it took each motion Wow! to then figure out what motions you could take out that would like take out the most amount of time and shorten the whole process. Oh my gosh. So they were, it was very scientific. Yeah. And third, they recognized that the goal uh, of increased efficiency is not just increased profit, but also maximizing worker satisfaction and providing time for enjoyment. Nice. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And although they called, at this time, they called it motion study, the Gilbras, uh were helping create the system that we now know as ergonomics. Wait. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Ergonomics were like those chairs that so it's also it's also so it's to me you're more efficient if you're more comfortable. So a lot of it was trying to. So I mean I'll get into this a little bit later, but it was to try to figure out like how high they should make the workbenches so that they didn't hurt their backs and like how to fix chairs so that people could work longer because they weren't uncomfortable. And so it was maximizing people's working potential by thinking about people as bodies that also, you know, feel stress and feel pain and like you need to think about their own physiology and how that affects their psychology, I guess. Cool. Yeah. So then Frank Gilbreth closed his construction business and then the couple just started uh, becoming industrial management consultants. So they were helping uh, industries figure out how to kind of streamline all of their business processes. 
and Lillian Gilbreth's education in psychology complemented Frank's analysis of the mechanics of workplace tasks. And then they published a bunch of different books, Motion Study in 1911, Fatigue Study in 1916, and Applied Motion Study in 1917, all during World War I. And some of Lillian Gilbreth's contributions to these books included the reduction of fatigue through better lighting, through better fitting chairs. Yeah, okay. And coffee breaks. Aww. Yeah, so we can thank Lillian Gilbreth for her coffee breaks at work. Um, which apparently was far from a universal concept in 1916. Yeah. They didn't think coffee breaks were important. Oh which, God. can you imagine now? People were treated so horribly. Yeah. I mean, they still are yeah. in a lot of places. So, although these three books were co-written by Frank and Lillian, only the last book actually credited Lillian as an author because the publishers were concerned about the credibility of the books. Should it be known that a woman was one of the authors? Even though she had a PhD in psychology and he hadn't gone to college. Oh my god. <laughs> so, yeah. So she's only credited in one of those books. Why and not just say, like, L, you know, like, not even say her whole name or something. Yeah, I don't know. They're giving the credit to other But what people. if they found out? <laughs> then it would make women more legitimate, which they were. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. Frank and Lillian tested many of their ideas on their 12 children. I was going to ask about <laughs> that. Like, that must be how they managed it. They must have known how to manage their home very efficiently, mm-hmm. right? So they established the one best way to take a bath, to train preteens, no. to... To uh, train preteens. To touch type. Touch type. Which might be like typewriting. typewriting? Yeah. So those are separate things. How to take the best way to take a bath and the best way for preteens to touch type. Oh, they were okay. Sorry, I thought they figured out how to train preteens and they figured out how to train people to touch type. And no. I was like, parents have been looking for the secret to train preteens for No, no, okay, no, no. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. Yes. Yeah. And they also charted <laughs> age-appropriate chores for each child based on, I'm guessing, some wow. type of analysis. So she's, they're both real type A. Yeah. 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 And these ensuing hijinks, <laughs> I don't know, provided enough material for uh, memoirs written by two Gilbreth children, uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, gotcha. and another book called Bells on Their Toes. Interesting. And so Cheaper by the Dozen, I think it was written in the 40s, and then Cheaper by the Dozen uh, was made into a movie in the 1950s. Yeah. And then there was the recent one with Hilary Duff and Steve Martin, 2003, that has very, very little to do with the Gilberts. I think they mentioned them in passing. Yeah. But it's like four steps removed at this point from I don't even remember. This family. Honestly, I don't remember that movie at I've all. I've never seen it. Yeah. Okay. So at this time, World War II has just ended. And there's a bunch of injured veterans who have started to return and the Gilbreths recognized the need to incorporate workers with disabilities into the workplace. Good. And Frank and Lillian advocated for those with disabilities and stressed the importance of matching the job to the worker. And wow. some of their studies focused on identifying the types of tasks that these workers could best perform. So they were figuring out what people 
who were amputees or something like that, what they could actually still do. And then they wrote this book called Motion Study for the Handicapped uh, in 1917. And that was the first book to deal in depth with occupational rehabilitation. Awesome. Wow. And they were both unique in recognizing that even though the problems of people with disabilities were physical, it was essential to also address their self-esteem and sense of purpose in rehabilitation, not just physical issues. Yeah. So they had a lot. And the results of these studies were impressive enough to attract the attention of the government. um, And the work was incorporated in the Vocational Rehabilitation Act of 1918, uh, which Congress passed to meet the needs of disabled veterans. So this work actually went into policy to help the veterans wow. after World War One. All right, time after Frank. So Frank huh? died in 1924, oh. leaving uh, Lillian Gilbreth alone to raise 11 children. World War One or World War Two? World War One. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, he died in 1924, okay. and then Lillian was 54 or 56 or something like that, and she all had she had. 11 children under the age of, like, 19. This did not happen in cheaper beds. (laughs) (laughs) No. Wow, that's sad. So the gender inequality in American society was magnified in certain male-dominated industrial fields, such as engineering, which was what she was doing. And so Lillian Gilbreth's consulting work fell off considerably after her husband's death because people didn't want to deal with a woman in general. In yeah. general. <laughs> and stop. Um, and Lillian Gilbreth found... But she found a niche within engineering that kind of sidestepped societal constraints. And she started analyzing and improving workplace efficiency and job functions performed by women. And so she applied the pr- principles of scientific management to household tasks and, quote, sought to provide women with shorter, simpler, and easier ways of doing housework to enable them to seek paid employment outside the home. So then she focused all of her engineering uh, credentials and past work on trying to make it easier for women to not just spend unnecessary amounts of time doing house chores. Yeah, great. So Lillian Gilbreth's reinvention as an expert in women's work issues extended to the home, and specifically, she worked on the kitchen. So her concept, she, she, uh, she made the concept of the circular kitchen, which was a physical layout that reduces unnecessary motions and improves task efficiency. Oh and now it's known God. as the work triangle. So I guess before you just had like a cabinet in one room with your like spices and then you had a drawer somewhere else. Oh. And then you'd have like your stove one place and then like your pots and pans. Pots and pans. Yeah. yeah. And it was just like there was and there weren't any counters. So like maybe you had like a table in another like room that you cut things on. Is that because people used to cook outside for a I don't know. I think it's or... just nobody had spent the time to figure out how to put it to So there weren't like yeah. there weren't cupboards above. It was just like one you'd have like one big cabinet. Yeah. With all of your like pots and pans and herbs and stuff like right. that and yeah, I don't know. I think it just hadn't been designed. Okay. Um, so she also worked with GE and other manufacturers to help improve appliance design with the goal of reducing waste time and effort in the home. Oh, my gosh. And she interviewed, while working at GE, she interviewed over 4,000 women to design the proper height for stoves, sinks, and other kitchen fixtures um, so that it would, like, minimize pa- back pain and, like, you know, unnecessary bending. 
god. And she also patented the shelves on refrigerator doors that house butter, eggs, like all those. <gasps> I love those little yeah, shelves. <laughs> all the shelves, those are all her. Yeah, okay. Um, she and she patented She patented, them. so those are all because of her. And uh-huh. she also made the foot pedal a uh, garage, a uh, garbage can. Yes! <laughs> She's a genius! All to save time and energy for American housewives. Wow. So, in order to test the efficiency of this new kitchen layout that she had made, they did a test with strawberry shortcake. What happened was, they first made a strawberry shortcake in a typical haphazard kitchen of this time, and then made an exactly similar shortcake using this new Herald Tribune kitchen, this new circular kitchen that she had designed, which had the same equipment and utensils as the other kitchen, but just had arranged them more efficiently. And the results of this test uh, were super startling, and they found that the number of kitchen operations was cut from 97 to 64, and the number of steps you had to take to make this cake went from 281 to 45. Whoa. But they make a note. So Lillian wrote, so this whole test was written up in this Better Homes manual. And Lillian wrote, are not opposed to walking and exercise for the woman of the family, far from it. But we do maintain that she should take that exercise in the open air rather than in a treadmill round of refrigerator to sink to stove and back again. Aww. So she Women should walk. We're not trying to make women not walk. It's just they should have, like, make it more efficient so they can go do anything else. She's just saying, like, why should people be spending all their, their time, time in a kitchen making one thing yeah. when they could just be enjoying their lives yeah. or doing anything else? Yeah. She also does it like designed this weird little desk for housewives in the kitchen that was supposed to have like a radio and a clock. And so they could like listen to music while they did things so that you weren't just focusing on all your yeah. like womanly tasks. Ironically though, while Lillian, is credited as being the creator of the modern kitchen. The only thing she really knew how to make was cake. And she was, like, too busy with her 12 children. I think she had, you know, people cooking for her. She was too busy being a scientist and a mom and just didn't ever learn how to cook. But then spent a lot of time trying to make the kitchen better. Wow. And so she continued to incorporate the needs of people with disabilities also in much of what she did. And she added a chapter to her homemaking book on the needs of homemakers with disabilities. Oh my gosh. And she also worked with GE to design home appliances with the people of disabilities in mind. Wow. Yeah. And then Gilbert began offering training to universities and colleges such as Bryn Mawr, Rutgers, and Purdue, where she became a full professor in 1935. And she was the first female professor at Purdue's engineering school and Mm -hmm. taught there until her retirement in 1948 at the age of 70. Dang. As in Lillian Gilbert's analysis of the home, the Gilbert's approach to workplace management emphasized that the pers- emphasized the person doing the work and the effect that workplace uh, layout and division of labor had on fatigue and efficiency and morale. Yeah. So they were really focused on thinking about workers as people and the different needs that they had. And her understanding of workers' psychology led her to recognize the importance of direct incentives like money and indirect incentives like job satisfaction and fatigue reduction. And during her time, she wrote prolifically, lectured widely, and earned international celebrity for balancing career and family with her 12 children. (laughs) And also, during World War II, she provided expertise on education and labor issues, especially about women in the workforce, 
uh, for organizations such as the War Manpower Commission, the Office of War Information, and the U.S. Navy. And she served on the Chemical Warfare Board and on Harry Whoa. Truman's Civil Defense Advisory Council. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then during the Korean War, she served on the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. How did so, she get those positions? I, I, it seems so, like, out of her purview. I guess it's because she became an expert at women in the workplace yeah. and just official, like, okay. their psychology. Yeah. Or how about the Harry Truman? I think she was friends with Harry Truman. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so awards and acclamations. So she's often called the first lady of management, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> and she was the first female member of the American Society of chemical engineers, the first female so female of the Society of Industrial Engineers, oh. a fellow of the American Psycho- Psychological Association, wow. the first female psychologist to have a United States postage stamp issued in her honor, uh, and then until nineteen or until two thousand and five, she was the only woman to have been awarded the prestigious Hoover Medal, which recognizes great unselfish non technical services by engineers to humanity. And then finally, she's received 23 honorary degrees. <gasps> oh my from like gosh. Every, Princeton, Brown, everywhere. Interesting. What so, about Columbia? No, fuck Columbia. <laughs> they no. never gave her a degree? No, she never actually ended up going. Yeah, okay. I don't know. They might have given her a degree. I didn't look at all yeah, 23. Yeah, but. So that is Lillian Gilbreth. Wow. Yeah. So That's she really cool. <laughs> spanned. She also was like. Um, Johnson and Johnson hired her to talk about sanitary napkins and like (laughs) (laughs) optimize sanitary napkins. So she's done some like weird additional things, but yeah, she was really important for just workplace morale and efficiency and also women in the workplace. I wonder how she would feel about our current robot crisis. Mm. Like, just taking... Taking all the jobs? Yeah, just replacing humans with robots because it's more efficient. Yeah. I don't know. Not that you would know. I don't know. I haven't (laughs) chatted with her about that. Um, Yeah, she sounds really cool. Yeah, and single mother, 12 children, and then she's, like, on all these war councils. (laughs) I want to... I kind of do want to hear more about her family life. Like, yeah. What that was like, and I mean, you can read cheaper by I the know, dozen yeah, because I, I think I that's all, that's legitimately just about. Obviously, I didn't learn that much watching. The I movie. don't think the movie is a good representation, <laughs> but I think the apparently the book is really funny. Yeah. And it's just about the weird family dynamics, yeah. having 12 children, and then your parents, like, kind of doing experiments on you all the time <laughs> with, like, why don't you try to wash the dishes this way, uh-huh. and, like, Jenny will wash the dishes this other way, and we'll time <laughs> you, and then we'll figure out which way's best, and then oh, we'll just wow. stick to that way. So, yeah, you can learn more about her family life. But apparently she is one of the first women to have it all, a job uh. and 12 children. <laughs> I'm, like, over here, like, oh, one kid sounds I know. like a lot. I, I, I mean, it's unbelievable that you could have... Twelve. Yeah. By the time the first one reaches age of twelve, though, they're, they're helping you out, right? 
Yeah, me probably. Like I mean, if Hillary they, Duff had to do it, I'm sure that they had to do it. They can microwave things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Were they, I don't think there were microwaves. Well, now I mean. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back then, who knows what they had to do? But they had a very highly efficient kitchen. So, all right. Should we take a break? I think we should take a break. Okay. All right. We are ready for our next segment. Yeah. Work, 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 work. All right, this is our next segment, The Women Who Work. Our shout-outs to badass women scientists currently making history. <laughs> We're trying I'm to get a lot of things going, aren't we? Cringeworthy. No, I love it. I love it. I love it all. <laughs> all right, shout-out one goes to um, behavioral ecologist Helen Morrow Bernard. Of the Borneo Nature Foundation. Woo woo! <laughs> Sirens are going again. Uh, <laughs> she has spent decades studying orangutans of Borneo, like 20 years, 30 years, and she recently published a paper describing her discovery that orangutans will occasionally self medicate using plant materials. Ooh! So, um,. During more than 20,000 hours of formal observation, Murrow, Bernard, and her colleagues watched 10 orangutans occasionally chew a particular plant that's not part of their diet into a foamy lather and rub it into their fur. Ooh, okay. (laughs) I I was on board and now I'm... Like, um, so it's medicating like a skin, oh, not ingesting okay. for, gotcha. you know, drugs. I thought it was a 420 <laughs> themed episode. Oh, it's almost 420. Yeah. No. No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That would have been smart. <laughs> no, I like it. I forgot what the date was. Who uh, knows when this will go up. <laughs> they uh, spent up to, the orangutan spent up to 45 minutes at a time massaging the concoction into their upper arms or legs. <laughs> All right. Um, and they believe this behavior is the first known example of a non-human animal using a topical analgesic. Oh. Have, do they know potentially what the components are in this study? Yes. So they, it's a plant called Dracania cantlei. An unremarkable-looking shrub, shrub with stalked leaves <laughs> um, that locals in Borneo use to treat aches and pains. Okay, also. so humans yeah. also use it. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Um, and people have studied its chemistry, but it doesn't say here that much about its uh-huh. chemistry, but just that they know that the plant can produce cytokines that... <laughs> they do something well if he, I mean if humans are using Whatever. if humans are using it that seems like good evidence yeah, that, that there's something sense, going actually. on yeah <laughs> what I just read doesn't really make sense so don't include it okay. I won't oh, yeah. anyway um but yeah they've been studying the plant for a little while to figure out exactly how it helps to treat aches and pains very um, cool but pretty cool that they saw that they actually like witnessed their orangutans using it yeah that's for, very, I very guess, cool the same purpose yeah yeah very cool so that's shout out number one woo um woo <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, my second shout out for this week is to Christina Olson a professor at University of Washington 
who won the NSF Allen T. Waterman Award for her studies in how children see themselves in the world. Um, So this award is the government's, our government's highest honor for an early career scientist. Okay. Or engineer. And it uh, recognizes an outstanding scientist under the age of 40. She receives a five-year million-dollar research grant. Cool. And she runs the Social Cognitive Development Lab at UW. Um, she created the Trans Youth Project. Which, oh, okay. Yeah, it's the nation's largest longitudinal study of transgender children. And she's the first person to receive this award at UW. And she's the first psychologist to receive the award. And she's the first woman to receive the award since 2004. Nice. And it's a yearly award? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So pretty amazing. Yeah. And she said, winning this award was a true shock as I was unaware I'd even been nominated. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the best way to win an award. Yeah. Um, And NSF said she's being recognized for innovative contributions to understanding children's attitudes toward in identification with social groups, early pro-social behavior, the development of notions of fairness, morality, inequality, and the emergence of social biases. Wow. So a lot so of, like, really important. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. I would give her the award if I could. Yeah. So those are my shout-outs for the week. Woo! Yeah. Awesome. awesome. I love it. Uh, okay. To our final segment? Yeah. Let's. Do some trivia. Trivia. Got some questions that I gotta ask and All right, okay. tell me some trivia. So last week's trivia question, you have alluded to this woman. Oh, that was a private conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Have you just given me random trivia in private that I don't remember? I think it was not recorded when. We oh, were that I. About. What I alluded to. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. Last <laughs> Okay, last week's trivia question was what female inventor also has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Hedy Lamar. Yes, Hedy Lamar. I got it. I think it's the first yeah. one. Her full name is Hedwig. Did you know that her first name is Hedwig? No, but that's amazing. Yeah, her full name is Hedwig Eva Marie Kiesler. This is just a brief... In the early 1900s, she moved to the U.S. and became a famous Hollywood actress. In the meantime, she liked to invent things and eventually came up with a design for a frequency hopping system that would later be used in the development of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth technologies. So, yeah, she's a pretty interesting person. Hopefully we'll talk about her at some point. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, and this week's trivia question... Okay. That would have been amazing, though, because I was thinking about doing her, and then it got... it would have actually worked out really well. It kind of got weird. Well, her life... I was reading about her today, and her life is very interesting. Yeah. And she's, like, beautiful, but seems troubled. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, once she started shoplifting laxatives <laughs> out of Florida, I was like, I don't know if this is the woman inspiration this that is we the need. the role model that we all need. But <laughs> at some point, maybe we'll talk about people who are good 
so, and, who have contributed, yeah. but maybe are have a little more sorted. Past. Yeah, a little yeah, more nuanced for sure. or something. Yeah, <laughs> she'll she'll. I'm sure we'll she'll do her at some yeah. point. Yeah, she's pretty interesting. Okay, this week's trivia question, which we'll answer on next week's pod. In 1963, the first woman to travel into space—into space—the <laughs> first woman to travel into space flew for 71 hours and orbited the Earth 48 times. What was her country of origin? Why would you go around the Earth 48 times? Because you can. Because you can. <laughs> like you're already up there. Like yeah. you might as well keep going. You're not supposed to guess. Oh, I'm not supposed to? Well, I have no idea, so. Well, you probably have some idea. Um, It seems like America's a good bet, but I feel like that's too obvious, so it's not America. But then I'm thinking it could be Russia, because they did get up there pretty quick before and after us. Yeah. I'm saying before and after, because I don't remember if it was before (laughs) or after. I think it was before, because it was like Sputnik, and then we were like, oh Uh shit. We gotta do this. Yeah, that was, like, without humans, and then... Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. So this is just... So this is sort of asking, was this woman from Russia or the U.S.? (laughs) I'm gonna say Russia. You can tell me next week. Yeah, and what was her name? I know you don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it will just be offensive if I attempt to say. (laughs) Okay, cool. So that's our pod for this week, and finishing... Touches? Oh, finishing touches. Uh, Okay, rate us on iTunes, please. It helps people find the podcast. It it helps us get more uh, views, listens. (laughs) How do you... you (laughs) Listens. Views, listens, bites. Yeah, all of those. (laughs) And then our theme song was Mary Anning by Artichoke. And also suggest, if you want, you can follow us on Twitter. I am Ecology Gremlin. I forgot what it was. So it's Ecology underscore Gremlin, G-R-E-M-L-Y-N. Yeah, and I'm at Emma Dietrich 89 I'm not going to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> you can look it up. All right, so I think the, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. Bye. your senses. (laughs) Stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself? It sounds so aggressive. (laughs) Why don't you go stimulate yourself? Bye! Go stimulate yourself. Uh, Stimulate your brain. We hope we've stimulated your brain. (laughs) Your little brain. Well, let's yeah. not be diminutive. <laughs> your big old brain. Your, your big nasty your brains. Your big juicy nasty brains. <laughs> uh, let's oh, not eroticize God. the ending. <laughs> um, Just out of nowhere, we're like, yeah, you big dick. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just have, like, 
Bye. I think our, our colleagues listen to this, and they're just like, what? It was fine the whole time, and it just went weird. Stim. Go out and stimulate someone. <laughs> <laughs> now go stimulate someone else's mind. Oh. No. None of it works. It's all sounds dirty. It's all so dirty. We have high esteem for these ladies. Science of the lamb. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Is that what lamb? You don't like Sayonara? We could try Sai, but it would have to be like Sai. Sayonara. <laughs> stem out. Stem out with your stem out. <laughs> okay, maybe this I'll- was your dose of stimulant. Forgive STEM for they know not what they do. (laughs) (laughs) What if we just took different STEM sounds? (laughs) Fantastic beasts and where to find STEM. (laughs) How do you like STEM apples? (laughs) Yes! How do you like STEM apples? Wait, I want it to be like, How do you like STEM apples? (laughs) Beep, boop, boop. Goodbye.